the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour, 5 p.m., as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. If you Google demise of Detroit, Jarrell and I were just talking about this during the break. The photographs of the destruction of once was a great, proud, and glorious city is alarming. It is shocking. It is dismaying at so many levels. You know, the population of Detroit today is barely 702,000. At its peak, it was over a million, 900,000 strong. The number of vacant, dilapidated, empty buildings, the amount of erosion that has taken place to the heart of that city is startling. And oddly, as much as we look at Detroit and the demise of its architecture, it kind of sets up a visual picture of what's been going on in our nation's moral, familial, and spiritual infrastructure as well. You know, out here in California, we talk about how the West was won back in the 1800s. Now it seems as if so much of the West, collectively speaking, the Western world, is being lost. In fact, How the West Really Lost God is the title of a new book by best-selling author Mary Eberstadt. And Mary, thank you for taking time to be with us tonight. Mary, by the way, Senior Fellow with the Ethics and Public Policy, and um, we appreciate so much you taking a couple of moments to be with us. Oh, thank you, Craig. Thank you for having me. Boy, this this demise of what we used to know as our nation, and I think anybody who, who spends any time in God's Word and any time reading the newspaper uh, or watching the news has got to see it all around us. As much as we've seen the evidence of the horrific decay of what once was a, a great and proud city called Detroit, a lot of that's going on in the family and in, quite frankly, the church today in the West, too, isn't it? Well, it is. If you look at the news cycle just from the past couple of weeks and you see all of these horror stories, that's just the latest example of what I think speaks to a lot of people. A lot of people want to know, well, what what happened to God? Uh, What happened to God-fearing people? And they are right to wonder that question, because if you look at statistics from Western Europe, for example, you see a sharp fall-off in uh, church attendance over the last few decades, In the United States, although it's more religious than Europe still, you see a rise in the number of people in their 20s who say that they are none of the above, no religious affiliation. So this idea of secularization or Christian decline, depending on how you want to put it, is real. Um, But the question is, what's causing it? Since the Enlightenment, we've had a secular answer to that question. And that is, well, you can expect Christianity to decline because 
it's what Karl Marx called the opiate of the masses. It's a, a superstitious bundle of beliefs that will go away as people get more rational and more educated. And this is what a lot of sophisticated people think, including now. But this storyline isn't right, Craig. It doesn't hold up when you put it against the data. It's not the case that the better educated you are, the less likely you are to be a Christian. As a matter of fact, in the United States, uh, there's data that shows the opposite, that if, as you go up the socioeconomic ladder, people are more likely to believe in God and to go to church. The same was true in Victorian London. That's another example I cite in the book. So it's not the case that education alone drives out God. And same with prosperity. It's not prosperity alone that drives out God. There are plenty of prosperous Christians all over the world. So something else is going on in Western secularization, and that's what I'm trying to get at in the book, because I think the answer amounts to two words, the family. Well, and let's talk about that, because there is sort of this chicken or egg, which came first scenario set up here. I mean, we certainly recognize that there has been a significant decline in in faith, specifically Christianity uh, in the West. And I think logically we could conclude that as people are less inclined to follow a, a strict belief system that will dictate or somehow lend direction to their behavior concerning things such as uh, children outside of marriage, uh, divorce, uh, abortion, things of this sort, that there's certainly a a strong connection there. Uh, Then, too, I think we could also argue that there is a a sense of support between uh, the family and how that as the family falls apart, we're less inclined to go to church, we're not working Mm -hmm. together in in kind of that harmonious unity unit anymore, that we're no longer then as actively participating in the church. So I guess it kind of comes down to which comes first. Does religious decline lead to the disintegration of the family? Does family decline lead to religious disintegration, or is it a bit of both? Well, I think it's both, but the point is that the conventional way of looking at this is to say, well, first comes religious decline as people sort of sit in the corner one by one and decide that they have a problem with this part of Scripture or that part or that it's not reasonable to believe in the Bible, and then comes the decline of the family. This is how conventional sociologists tell the story. But my point is there's something else going on here, which is that family decline encourages religious decline. And let let me just give you a few examples of what I mean by that, because there are things that everybody can understand. So we live in a time when many millions of households don't have a dad in the home, for example. We've seen this incredible rise in um, fatherless households. Now, if you're the child of a household like that, I think you have to make an extra conceptual leap to understand this very basic Christian idea of God as a benevolent, loving father. Mm -hmm. Because if you've never known a benevolent, loving father, that's an idea that's foreign to you. So that's just one example of how the way we live now in fractured and atomistic families can put an extra barrier in between an individual and religious belief. None of that is to say that folks from broken homes can't become, you know, perfectly religious people, but it is to say we have new impediments to that leap that didn't used to exist. So similarly, the Christian story is saturated with family imagery and family ideas uh, from the get-go. I mean, this is a religion that starts with the, uh, the miraculous birth of a baby. 
we live in a world with falling birth rates and smaller families. Many people grow to adulthood without ever having held a baby or taken care of a baby. Don't you think that makes it a little bit more uh, exotic or foreign to think that you could have this religious story that begins with a baby? So these are just some examples of what in the book I refer to as the phenomenon that family illiteracy breeds religious illiteracy. So this is a two-way street. It's not just that religious decline leads to family decline. It's also that not living in extended natural families the way people have throughout history up until very recently puts new barriers in the way of religious belief. Well, most certainly so. I mean, you think, for example, about the redefining of the family unit these days, that, for example, where uh, certainly when I was growing up, uh, mom and dad took you to church. We went together as a family and participated as a family in, in uh, you know, religious services and so forth. I, I think you could argue today that, well, a lot of parents, just a single parent, would say, I don't have time for that. You know, I'm working two jobs and i got to raise five or six kids, whatever the number might be. And so uh, spending copious amount of times at church is oftentimes the furthest thing on their mind. So is it any wonder that they're, number one, not seeing the model the way God designed it? Number two, there's not a motivation that would set up the mentoring necessary that would do provide the role model to understand, hey, there's benefits to all of this. And when I grow up and someday have a family of my own, I wish to continue these self-same traditions. So is it any wonder that I think there's a very strong connectivity? as you're suggesting. Yes, and continuing those traditions is a big part of it. This is something else I talk about in the book. You know, a lot of people uh, say, well, it's not that God has disappeared from Western society. It's that people have gotten more spiritual. They're into different kinds of practices, New Age practices, etc. So they're still spiritual. They're still sort of religious. And I'm not saying they aren't, but what I am observing is that if you read the studies, you see that those are not people who pass down their faith to their children. Those kinds of things don't get transmitted through the generations, and part of the reason is that, for whatever reason, it is traditionally religious people who tend to have children in this country, and not just in this country, but across uh, Europe and Israel and uh, pretty much every place that it's been studied. For whatever reason, secular people have no families or small families. So what you see over time is that what gets passed down through families and families of size is traditional religion and not these variations. So non-traditional households, uh, you know, might go to church and regard themselves as Christians, but they're not likely to pass on the traditions of Christianity to their children and their grandchildren. And well, that's a really uh, interesting phenomenon. And, and the other thing, too, we can make an interesting uh, contrast and comparison here with the rise of the spread of Islam around the world and seeing that largely most of that is happening, certainly not because of their effective evangelism tools, but rather because of the birth rate and the emphasis on the family, the family unit, and uh, procreating at large levels in order to increase the size and the influence and therefore the impact of Islam across the world. So they understand this, and this is something that for a long time, certainly in in Western Europe, uh, with uh, emphasis on procreation, 
within the church help grow the church's numbers as well. We're taking a look at a fascinating new book called How the West Really Lost God. Mary Eberstadt, best-selling author, is with us today. Uh, the new book, by the way, published by Templeton Press, and you'll find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area as well as through um, the usual suspects like Amazon.com. Mary, by the way, is a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, and we're going to come back to more of this question as we talk about many of the things that have happened to undermine Christianity in the West and, most importantly, wrestles through the question, is there anything we can do to stop this decline, or is this something that's simply inevitable as much as we might anticipate it, looking at the decline of what was happening to the Roman Empire, that eventually this is just the way things are going to be, do you think? Come back to more of the conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Mary Eberstadt is with us tonight. We are talking about her new book, How the West Really Lost God. And, you know, we're seeing this strong connection with a lot of things, too, in terms of just the shift in our thinking, aren't we, Mary? I mean, in, in terms of the, the, the rise of things like moral relativism, secular humanism, things of this side, which, sort of, which always kind of tend to take all of the kind of one by one dismantling the foundations of our faith, don't they? Well, there's that, and there's also the fact that the new atheists occupied the public square for a while, and between them and what's been going on uh, in, in this administration, you could argue the um, Christians have been taking something of a rhetorical beating out there. Um, but that does not mean that all hope is lost, and that's actually part of why I wrote the book, because I think there are a lot of things going on that point the way to a religious and with it a family revival down the road. How do we go about affecting that? I mean, as much as we recognize that there is a significant atrophy going on of not only the spiritual strength of America, but the West in general, and I think it's fair to include Europe in this, uh, and then, too, the, the demise of the American family. We mentioned here at the start of our conversation, Mary, uh, the, such things as the high rate of abortion, divorce in our country, single parents. You know that 70% of the births in the city of Detroit today are all to unwedded mothers. So looking at this, what can we do to help stem the tide or reverse this slow, apparent march toward the eventual destruction of Western society and civilization? Well, let me give you a couple of reasons, Craig, why I'm an optimist about this. Um, first of all, in the book... The first thing I try to do is get rid of this idea that I think is the most prevalent idea uh, describing religious decline, this Enlightenment idea that Christianity's eventual demise is inevitable, that as people get smarter and richer, they will decide that they can jettison this thing. This is not what has happened. The data don't show it. The timeline doesn't show it. So it's really important to understand, first of all, that the idea of inevitable decline has been contradicted by the facts. That in itself is grounds for optimism, I think. The second thing I think is really interesting is the relationship between Christian decline and the welfare states of the West. For many decades now, we've had these gigantic welfare states telling us that they can be counted upon to act as family substitutes 
if you remember the the Julia video that was part of the re-election campaign of President Obama, that one about the young woman who is helped from cradle to grave by the welfare state, from daycare to old age, that's an example of what I'm talking about. This promise has been out there, but if we look at what the welfare states of the West uh, are doing now, if we even read the financial pages as as laymen and laywomen, we see that these states are in incredible financial trouble. We see that the shrinking of the family and the fracturing of the family has put incredible burdens on the welfare state, picking up the pieces and bankrolling the fractured families of the West. And we see that down the road they are unsustainable because there are not enough taxpayers to go around. It's really as simple as that. It's more obvious in Western Europe than in America quite yet, but we are headed in the same direction just as we were headed in the same direction with rates of family fracture and rates of secularization. So the point is when the welfare states of the West are revealed to be incapable of keeping the promises that they have made, people are going to do what people always do in times of adversity. They go home. They go to church. They look for those elemental, organic connections of what's nearest to them. We saw this after 9-11, when many millions of people who had not been in church in a long time suddenly showed up, and it was standing room only in the churches for uh, weeks and months after that event. I'm sure you remember that, too, because it was countrywide. Of course. That's an example of how real shocks to the societal system have a way of putting people back in touch with their roots. And for that reason, I think you can argue that down the road, out of the, the uh, curtailing of the welfare state or a more realistic understanding of the welfare state, you can actually see the seeds of family and religious revival. Sadly, though, a lot of this comes on the heels, as you suggest, when we've gone through some sort of a major crisis that kind of pulls us together, causes us to reevaluate our priorities, rethink the direction of our lives. It happened, uh, certainly, Sandy Hook. It happened after 9-11. So at the end of the day, is it maybe things such as the current moral, political, economic crisis that, in a sense, might sadly create the groundwork for spiritual revival in the West? Yes, but I don't think it has to be catastrophic necessarily. Um, One of the things I I note with interest is that in 2008, during the uh, economic crash then, a couple of interesting things happened that weren't much talked about, but one was the, the return of adult children to the homes of their parents because they couldn't afford to move out on their own. To the extent that this was noticed, people thought it was a bad thing. Um, you know, that they should have had the money somehow to move out on their own. But I see a silver lining in that, which is the unintentional reinvigoration of the extended family. And I always talk about extended family, not nuclear family. Nuclear family is, a, I think, too constricting a term. I think it holds people to too, too strict a standard. But the extended family, the idea of a family that goes through the generations and is connected in all kinds of different ways... I think we did see the reinvigoration of that kind of family on account of the downturn in 2008. Also in 2008, the divorce rate dropped. Now, that's a really interesting thing. And divorce lawyers themselves said that they thought it dropped because 
adversity made people think twice about um, something that's expensive and difficult like divorce. So I do think also that over time people are rational creatures, that the, the toll, the various kinds of tolls of the ways that we live now that are so different from the way our ancestors lived uh, will be taken account of and that people of the future will have a more expansive understanding and a more appreciative understanding, perhaps, of the benefits of the extended family than we have today. You know, so I see all kinds of grounds for hope out there. It's always sad, though, when we have to um, realize what we have once we come close to losing it. Uh, but maybe, as you suggest, Mary, hopefully, as we kind of get the clarion call out there, the word of warning, call the attention of folks, that those that have an ear to hear, that can hear what the Lord is saying to his church, uh, can rise up and respond and help stem the tide. It's a fascinating read, and one I would recommend, How the West Really Lost God. Mary Eberstadt is its author and our guest on this segment of Lifeline. Again, the book is published by Templeton, and you can get it online, uh, certainly through Amazon.com. Also, Mary has a website, HowTheWestReallyLostGod.com. It's also the title of the book. Easy to remember, HowTheWestReallyLostGod.com. And it is... Uh, it's an important indictment, and I think one that we need to take to heart quite seriously. Our thanks to Mary Eberstadt for being with us on this segment of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Tolerance. It's a term bantied about with great abandon these days, especially by those on the left. Liberals who wish for freedom of expression and understanding for all peoples of all persuasions, hawking all agendas, eh, with the sole caveat that tolerance is tossed unceremoniously out the window when it comes to those deemed by the so-called tolerant left to be Intolerant, And by intolerant, they mean pretty much anyone who doesn't tout their party line or embrace their body politic. A new book out that gives us the inside story to this issue of an attempt by the liberal left to silence everyone else. The book is called The Silencing, How the Left is Killing Free Speech. Its author, well-known political pundit, news analyst, USA Today columnist, and Fox News contributor, Kirsten Powers. Kirsten, let's talk a bit about this attack on free speech coming from kind of an unusual end of the political spectrum. I mean, aren't these the same people, the students of yesterday and the teachers of today that began the free speech movement on the Berkeley campus in the 1960s? Yes, exactly. And I, I call the people in the book the liberal left to distinguish them from what I consider just the average Democrat or even your average principled liberal who still really holds firm to those ideas of tolerance and diversity and free speech that you were just referring to. Uh, and, and that's what makes, I think, what they're doing that much more troubling is because on the one hand, they're, they still claim to value these things, while at the same time, they are using all sorts of different tactics to silence the debates, to say certain things, you know, certain debates are over, that we aren't allowed to talk about certain things anymore, and if you do talk about them, you will be labeled with some toxic moniker that's you know, going to make you radioactive, basically, to the rest of society. And, and how do they live with themselves in a sense? And, and, and you've had a chance to deal with both ends of the political spectrum, both as a reporter and news analyst. There's this sense, I think, that some of them are out there promoting the same kind of stereotypes that they themselves purport to hate. 
Right. Well, I think that, that they are able to do it because they really do believe that what they're doing is a righteous act. They, they believe that they have the capital T truth, that they know what is right, and that there really is nothing to debate. And so that they don't, they, they don't feel that there is a need to, for example, treat somebody who opposes same-sex marriage as anything other than a homophobe or a bigot. And and so, you know, even though I, I do support same-sex marriage, I, I recognize that there are people who don't that are people of goodwill. And that, you know, and then that the best way to engage people is to um, persuasion, uh, you know, rather than coercion, rather than trying to silence them. And the liberal left doesn't see it that way. They really do believe that the righteous act is to just really sort of isolate that person from society by saying, no, you know, you're, you're a homophobe and, uh, you know, we don't, we don't even need to talk to you about it. Yeah, the irony is if they believe so strongly in their position, you would think that the notion of civility and honesty in public discourse in the end would allow the, the quote-unquote truth to win out, but yet they don't apparently see it that way. And I have to wonder if there is almost a sense of, of compartmentalizing going on here. You, you resided inside of the Clinton administration as a Clinton appointee from 92 to 98. From that kind of uh, viewpoint, from the kind of the inside looking out, is there a lot of compartmentalization that goes on? I don't. I, I don't think that they really feel a need to compartmentalize because, like I said, they really do believe that they believe so strongly in what they're doing that they they feel like that they're on the right so-called right side of history or the you know the right side of the issue, and and so that they, you know, there's, I, there's a, this example. This just happened last month of a uh, uh, Christina Hotsummer who's. She's an AEI scholar, and she came. She went to Georgetown and Oberlin universities in the same month to speak on what she calls equity feminism. That's her version of feminism, which is different from liberal feminism. And you know, she was treated almost like a terrorist coming to campus. It was, you know, people, you know she had to have security, and they had people there holding signs that they're trigger warning, so they were being triggered. You know, this is going to cause them some sort of emotional distress and danger and there were signs for a safe room where you could go and and be safe while she's you know on campus talking to the campus republicans about her her vision of feminism and just treating treating differing ideas as actually dangerous you know that that's i think that that is what is it takes it away from just your basic intolerance of uh, i can't hear this that it's actually posing a danger and need, and and they try to get the speeches canceled and if they can't get the speeches canceled then they try to, they're very disruptive um, or they try to delegitimize the speaker by making them seem like they're saying these horrific things when all they're doing is expressing a different opinion. And the irony is that seems to be kind of the, out of the arsenal of, uh, of tools that they utilize seems to be some of the more popular approaches, stigmatization, uh, delegitimizing, as you're saying, sometimes even going as far as, as dehumanizing. Uh, many of your colleagues, some of which um, as, as commentators that appear on other networks, I won't mention MSNBC, uh, make much game of this sport of dehumanizing those that have differing opinions. Yeah, I mean, dehumanizing is a tactic you see in particular towards uh, conservative women or uh, non-white conservatives. So it's basically trying to turn them into, you know, non non beings. You don't even need to take them seriously. And with with conservative women, they will do it through. You know, she's not really a woman. They don't speak for women. The only women who speak for women are pro-choice Democrats. Um, that they are, you know, pushing a skirt, 
there are sort of these, you know, female impersonators. These are some of the, the words that have been used to describe uh, conservative women, or they objectify them, which is another form of dehumanization, which actually, what is so noxious about this is that it's feminists who have came up with this theory that dehumanize, objectifying women is dehumanizing, and it's actually very effective. It's a very effective way to, to make people not take a woman seriously. So if you focus obsessively on her body or her looks or what she's wearing, as they did with, for example, Sarah Palin, and turn her into a sex object, then voters start to, you know, not see this person any longer as even a potentially serious person. They just see them as a sex object. And so these are the kind of tactics that they use, even though they say they stand for women. But what I don't understand is, and maybe you can shed some light on this, why do mainstream liberals give give sort of a get-out-of-jail-free card to some of these commentators and, and so-called news reporters who, who use this kind of language? For example, you mentioned about uh, references to people like um, either Sarah Palin or uh, Michelle Bachman as, as bimbos. I think at one time, didn't Ed Schultz even uh, use that yeah. demeaning term uh, directed toward you? And, and, and and when it's done, the liberal left seems to look the other way. But can you imagine anyone on Fox News making a reference to, say, Hillary Clinton as the um, Democrat candidate bimbo and getting away with it? No, of course not. I mean, there's a double standard. And at some point, they have started to be shamed by it. And so they have some groups have started to recognize that they have to condemn uh, condemn this when it's happening to conservative women, though they always kind of do it in this grudging way, you know, like, oh, yeah, I guess we have to, you know, we have to stand up for this, but, you know, they're not, but but for a long time, they didn't, and a lot of them were participants in it, that's the thing, that a lot of the people who were making the misogynist attacks against Sarah Palin were self-described feminists. So, it, you know, it, it, it's, and so it's, it's sometimes it's them, and then other times it's sitting by, you know, while Keith Olbermann, while he was you know, sitting atop his perch at MSNBC is doing it, whether it's Chris Matthews that is doing it. Uh, they, you know, they just sit there and they, they don't, they, they just either ignore it or they, um, you know, maybe will find something to complain about now and then, but it doesn't cause the full-scale hysteria that you see, like what you saw, what happened when, when Rush Limbaugh had, you know, had uh, called Sandra Fluck, you know, a slut, which he... He apologized. Well, actually, I don't know if he apologized, but he was treated as if he had to, uh, you know, lose his show over that, right? You know, and this is one incident versus continuous incidents of liberal men that are completely ignored. What's ironic about this is just how insidious and widespread all this is. As you delineate inside the pages of the silencing, we, we, we find this approach to, um, again, just the, 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 the closing down of civil dialogue, the stigmatization, dehumanization of the opposition, so to speak, that occurs not only on college campuses, as we referred to a moment ago, it's taking place uh, certainly within uh, politics, within the the, the Democrat Party. We see it taking place in in the news arena. It, it's almost as if there's there's no free um, antagonizing zone where actual discourse and exchange of, of ideas can take place anymore without fearful of, of suddenly coming under attack or having even your very legitimacy being questioned. 
Right. I think that's exactly right. Um, and yeah, and I just did want to clarify that Russ, I just checked that Rush Limbaugh did apologize to her, which is like one extra step that we don't often see by the, uh, the men, uh, you know, on the left who just are doing this with in, impunity and are never, are never criticized. So, you know, I do think that, um, the delegitimizing that's going on, which I get into in the, in the book so much is just, is such an effective tactic to, uh, to avoid debate. To, to, to not have to, you know, somebody says something and you don't have to engage them on what they actually said. Uh, instead, you can just pick out something about them that other people are not going to like. Other people do not want to listen to somebody who, who they've been convinced is a racist. They do not want to listen to somebody who they've convinced, have been convinced of, is, a, is an Islamophobe or, you know, or a race denier, as they call the people who question the campus race. Statistics, and it's just kind of, they're neither conversation enders, not conversation starters. It's not encouraging robust debate, uh, and, and which is really how we get knowledge in society. Uh, instead, it's encouraging really us just accepting what a certain group of people have decided is the truth, and we're not supposed to question it. Kirsten Powers, our guest today on this edition of Lifeline. We're talking about her new book called The Silencing, How the Left is Killing Free Speech. The new book, by the way, just released by Regnery Press, available at Bay Area bookstores as well as through Amazon.com. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of our conversation with Kirsten Powers as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to Lifeline. Our special guest today, well, you certainly know her as a political pundit, news analyst, USA Today columnist, and Fox News contributor, and now a new book called The Silencing. We're visiting today with Kirsten Powers. Kirsten, you relay an example of how insidious all of this is taking place on college campuses in terms of almost uh, sort of grooming students into this sense of of intolerance uh, by talking about um, Lafayette College. And, and their so-called bias response team. Uh, share this example with listeners from the book, if you would, and then give us a sense of just how widespread is this mentality across campuses in America today? Well, th- these kinds of things are starting to crop up, and I expect them to probably spread, which is the idea that, you know, if you, something on campus happens that you feel was somehow offensive, you know, some sort of bias, whether there's a racial bias or, you know, gender bias or something, that you can report people for it, uh, and that it's treated as if it's uh, almost like a bodily harm that has occurred to you, and this is something that comes up throughout the the book in, in, in various stories, which was particularly alarming to me, which was that, you know, taking offense or even just disagreement or having to see something or hear something that you don't like is really just often described as a violent event. That, 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 that's the, the language that's used. I, I talk about the professor at the University of California, Santa Barbara, who physically attacked a pro-life student uh, who was part of a peaceful demonstration and told the police officer when she was arrested that she was quote-unquote triggered, which is a word that comes up throughout the book, uh, that, that she was triggered by having to encounter this peaceful demonstration. She shouldn't have to see something like this, that it's you know, this is supposed to be her safe space. This is a professor, um, you know, who doesn't want to have to encounter a view that she doesn't like and that and treats it just the expression of the view as an attack. And so this is the mentality that we have that is spreading, which is which is that, you know, in that case, 
that's an outlier. Usually it doesn't involve somebody physically attacking somebody. The response, but there, there are other ways the person is then silenced because, you know, they say, well, I just, I, I can't, you know, I just, it, it was, I can't, I can't see that. I can't hear that. I can't. Just, you know, the irony is that you, when you, breakdown. when you put this in context for those of us that are old enough to remember, a, a lot of the new liberalism today, whether it be on college campuses or in the mainstream media, sounds like a lot of the old McCarthyism of the 1950s. Yeah, yeah, very similar. And it's, there's, yeah, there's this aspect of who you talk to also. Uh, is is indicative of, of who you are versus what you say or what you think. And I experienced this actually when my book came out, when uh, I gave excerpts of the book to various publications, including the Daily Beast, which I write for and is considered a, a, you know left of center, but also to a publication at the Heritage Foundation, which is conservative. And because of that, I had all these a liberal lefties coming after me saying that I, you know, because I had allowed the Heritage Foundation to run an excerpt that I, you know, that that just proved that I was a right-wing hack and my book was <laughs> somehow backed by the Heritage Foundation. Some, you suddenly you're a shill, shill for the left, or for the right, right rather. <laughs> yeah, but, but never mind that, like, I ran excerpts in the Daily Beast. You know what I mean? It doesn't, it's just, they, they just look for some kind of relationship that they can use to prove that you're a secret, you know, closet conservative. I have a bunch of examples in the book of how they really use this against journalists to scare journalists to into uh, not pursuing stories because they will be accused of being closet conservatives because they are investigating the Obama administration or they're investigating Republicans. But if they investigate, uh, you know, the, the right, the, the right people, then, uh, then they're going to, if they investigate Republicans, they're going to be fine, but if they investigate Democrats they're not. So You'll have people like Cheryl Atkinson, who award-winning investigations of both parties, but all you'll hear about from the liberal left is how she investigated the Obama administration, and therefore she's this, she's literally this partisan, uh, you know, conservative hack. Yeah, you know, the irony is this agenda, though, just bubbles so 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 uh, close to the surface. It's it's unbelievable. I mean, for example, uh, Chris Hayes recently did what he called a Hillary Clinton study guide for millennials, where he touted all the wonderful things that she had apparently had done before most of them, quite frankly, had ever even been born. And yet, can you imagine if, say, Fox News attempted to do a, a new millennials guide to Ben Carson? What 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 kind of response you would see from the left? Right. Well, there's total double standard. I mean, you can't. There's, there, you know, there's this idea that uh, you know they spent all this time. I have a whole chapter on it, trying to delegitimize Fox News. Uh, the White House did, saying you know they're not a real news organization, and uh, and and telling other news organizations that they shouldn't treat them as real news organizations. And meanwhile, MSNBC is doing this times a million, you know, and, and I'm not, I actually, I think MSNBC is free to do that. I don't, and if, and if, the, and if George Bush had ever come out and said they weren't legitimate, I would have been the first person to defend them. You know, I don't, I think that they, they're, they're, they're free to, you know, have, have whatever kind of programming they want to have. And, uh, and I, and I don't think that that means that, you know, if Chris Hayes does something on one show that, uh, you know, a reporter or a host from another show is somehow held accountable for that, right? I mean, like, the same way, like, they try to merge everything at Fox together. It's like, well, because there's Sean Hannity, then that means that Brett Baer can't be trusted. Well, those two things have nothing to do with each other. You know, they're completely different shows. And um, and one is an expressly an opinion show. 
And so, yeah, there's, just not, there's an absolute double standard where you had Obama administration officials leaving and going to work for MSNBC after the same people who said that Fox was not a legitimate news organization. Help us understand something here. Um, how much of this, in your opinion, is, is just based on that sense of unfamiliarity breeding contempt? In other words, that it's easy to either dislike or hate what you don't know or don't understand. So many people, particularly for the, the, the political world inside the Beltway, don't have an opportunity to really get to know, quote unquote, the enemy or the other side. And so as a result, because of that, that sense of ignorance, we'll call it, uh, that they that, that they sort of have this 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 deepening, abiding sense of acrimony shown toward those who don't share the same opinion. Yeah, yeah, I think that there's I, I, there's definitely an element of that. It's very hard to sustain these the, the, these ideas. For example, that every single person who opposes same-sex marriage is a homophobe. If you actually have friends or people that you are close to who have sincere religious beliefs that lead them to oppose same-sex marriage, and, and you can see, you know, that they, they aren't homophobes. I'm not saying that the person's never a homophobe, but I'm just saying that that's, you know, that, that, at least in my experience, the people that I know, that that's not what's driving them. What's driving them is a religious belief. So I do think there's that. Um, but I don't, the, the problem with the liberal left is they really aren't interested in, <laughs> in knowing people who are different than them, and they, because they are so convinced that they are right, that they it just does not seem to have occurred to them that uh, that they could be wrong. But, you know, I used to be pretty close-minded, and I was definitely, you know, I'd worked in the Clinton administration, Democratic politics, very liberal family, and uh, I had a lot of these, these ideas as well that I had it all figured out. And basically, working at Fox News and, and then later in life, conversion to Christianity, where I started being around, obviously, a lot of Christians and more conservatives, I, you know, it did slowly break down my my prejudices. Frankly, I mean, they were prejudices uh, where I, could, you know, I didn't necessarily change my political views, but I was able to see, oh, you know, there is a debate to be had here. Uh, there are things to talk about, and, and these are legitimate views. They're just different than mine. So at the end of the day, while it's it's often kind of surprising to see how closed-minded so many so-called open-minded liberals really are, there is hope, and 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 I think sometimes the opportunity to the degree to which it's possible. And I'm just thinking about people that are engaged in the day-to-day business of going about uh, their affairs to engage with people in mm-hmm. a loving, legitimate intellectual fashion concerning the issues of the day, not with heated exchange and raised voices, but just just an, an open-minded exchange of ideas can sometimes eventually bring people around to another point of view. I think so, yeah. It's, it's often slow, so I think people get discouraged. Uh, you know, I think it's not, it's not like you're going to meet somebody one time and that's going to happen, but I do think over time, and I've had a lot of friends tell me that, it's, you know, knowing me also has changed their views on some things, or even, you know, they have their, their ideas about what a liberal is like or what a liberal thinks, and, and you know, so I think, you know, it's been beneficial in both directions. Well, the book certainly is very engaging in helping us to not only better understand what's taking place here, the dynamic between the two sides, so to speak, but also, I think, uh, uh, gives us a sense of hope that we can engage in some dialogue and eventually see some change. Kristen Powers, the book is called The Silencing, How the Left is Killing Free Speech. The book, published by Regnery Press, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as through Amazon.com. And, of course, Regnery Press, a part of the company that owns this fine, 
radio station. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.